On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. I think it's fairly clear, Mike, that we're near water. <laughs> the waves from the Sea of Galilee just lapping up close to us, close to our feet, actually. We're literally just, just a few feet away, aren't we? So we, we're, we're here in Galilee. We're at the, literally the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And at the point in the story where Jesus has, has risen from the dead and has appeared to some of his disciples, but we're in a particular place now, so do, do explain. Yeah, we're in a place called Tabga, which actually we visited earlier in this series. But here we're at the Church of the Primacy of Peter, as it's called, which, as you've said, is right by the sea. We're, you know, two metres away from it at most as we are sitting here. And this is the church that records one of those resurrection appearances of Jesus, but one of the really crucial ones when he appears to Peter and tells him, okay, you've messed up, but that doesn't have to be the end of things. So where do we find this story in the Bible? We find it in John chapter 21. Great, great story and well worth taking a couple of minutes just to read it now. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which was an alternative name for the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, Haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat towing the net full of fish, for they weren't far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net wasn't torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? 
And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, was following them. This was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and it said, Lord, who's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Now, because of this, the rumour spread among the brothers that this disciple wouldn't die. But Jesus didn't say he wouldn't die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive till I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. And we know that his testimony is true. And Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world wouldn't have room for the books that would be written. A lot of detail there, and I'm conscious that Jesus appeared to groups, to two or three people and to individuals, but this is a very intimate interaction with one particular person. It is, isn't it? There's, there's this small group of disciples who've been out there fishing at night. Why at night? Well, that's when they did it. They hung a lamp over the back of the boat and the light attracted the fish and they dropped their nets, whether it was a dragnet or a cast net, and it was a great time for fishing in the evening but they've been out all night we read and these experienced fishermen have caught nothing it's interesting isn't it what on earth are they doing going back to fishing after the commission jesus had already given them i think they were disheartened and so they'd gone back to the one thing that they knew so it's an interaction with this small group but within that interaction of this small group of fishermen who'd been so disheartened, why, well, Jesus had been put to death, risen, the great excitement of that. But in this period, it seems like Jesus kept coming and going. He wasn't with them the whole time. It's as if he's preparing them for his final leaving and returning to heaven. And so disheartenment has taken over again and they've gone back to fishing. But then as they come, yeah, within this interaction and provision for this small group, there's this particular encounter with Peter. And, and Jesus' question to them, you know, have you not caught any fish? I mean, it's just a sort of very matter-of-fact question of all the things. <laughs> yeah. And of course, they don't recognise him. Do you know what? It's, it's even more uh, enlightening in the actual Greek because really what the Greek says is, you haven't caught any fish, have you? <laughs> he knows. You've been out spending all your energy all night and you've caught nothing, have you? I mean, wow, if that's not a picture for us today, when we pour our energy into something we haven't invited the Lord into and what came out of it, absolutely nothing. And that's exactly what happened for these guys. And he knew it. But the sort of penny dropped from what we hear, you know, something clicked with the disciples, they, they, they realised this was this was quite an unusual, dare I say, even unexpected encounter. Yeah, and you know why didn't they recognise him at first? Well, we've said in a previous episode that in his resurrection appearances, it looks like Jesus's body 
was transformed, it was glorified in some way. So at times it was recognizably him, but at others not. So Mary in the garden thinks he's the gardener at first until he says, Mary. And suddenly she sees who it is. The two on the road to Emmaus don't recognize him at first until he breaks bread. And then suddenly their eyes are open. It's what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection body that Jesus now has. And so they don't recognize him instantly. And that's not just because of the darkness of the gloom or the, the morning light is because of this transformation. But suddenly, John, the beloved disciple, John, the penny drops for him. And he sees, it's the Lord. He's the first to see it, but Peter's the first to do something about it. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is the, the fact that Jesus is sort of cooking fish <laughs> on the seashore here. That's great, isn't it? So sort of here where we are, Jesus has built a little fire and he's already cooking what? Fish. So there they are out there thinking they are going to catch fish. They catch nothing. And here they come and he's already cooking fish. Interestingly, he still says to them, bring some of the fish that you've got and add to it as well. I love that. Again, it's, it's like in the story of the, the loaves and the fishes and the story of the multiplication. Bring the little that you have and add it in and see what God will do with it. So it's here in this place that the church recalls that incident of Jesus having prepared this meal for them. In fact, as we look across from where we are now, just a few meters away is this black basalt stone, the volcanic stone church that was uh, constructed here on the site of a fourth century Byzantine church. So often these modern churches are built on the sites of much earlier church. You can still see quite close to us, the original stone steps into the entrance of the Byzantine church leading up onto rock. We can still see bedrock there and the church is built over bedrock. And at the front of this very simple church, black basalt stone inside, no decoration. It is just leading you to the front. And what's at the front? Right there by the altar is bedrock exposed in the ground. And this is thought to be the what's called inside the mensa Christi, the table of Christ, the rock on which he prepared breakfast for them. And that's recalled here in this church and this location. And we can hear and see visitors from all nations gathering here and taking photographs and looking out to the Sea of Galilee and popping into the little church and, and just getting a sense of uh, of the significance of whether it's this spot or another spot nearby um, doesn't matter so much as we've we've discovered so often it's it's the the principle behind it yeah and what we know is it certainly would have been if not on this very rock very very close to here we've said previously that tabga was a really well-known fishing center this northern part of the lake is a, a, a real treasury of fish why because of the hot springs that are fed into the sea here at Tabga. So this was an area of prolific fish and so it was a great spot for fishermen. So if it wasn't where our feet are now, it was very, very close to where we are. And this kind of bedrock was certainly the sort of thing where the story would have happened. And the story that you've read, clearly written by eyewitnesses. They were there because of the detail. There's a reference to 153 fish. Amazing, isn't it? Um, 
Absolutely right. Eyewitness detail in John's Gospel, written by the John in this story, which is why he keeps referring to the disciple whom Jesus loved rather than saying, me, and I was there. He's trying to just step back a little bit from it, but clearly it's his eyewitness. And yeah, I love that detail of the 153 fish. Now, why 153? Well, people have had a field day with this over the centuries. One of the most common was that it represented the nations because in the ancient world, there were 153 types of fish that were known and therefore this represented Jesus giving himself for all the nations of the world. It's a wonderful story, but you know what? There's really no evidence at all that they believed there were only 153 types of fish and the one piece of evidence that there is, it seems that the guy made that up. So I don't think it was to do with that. So why 153 fish? Well, remember what these guys were, they were fishermen. They weren't recreational fishermen. They didn't go out with a rod and line on a weekend and see if they could catch something that they either had to throw back, which seems to me pointless in fishing, but anyway, I've never been a fisherman, or take home to cook. This was their business. They were in business together. So what would they do at the end of a working day? Well, they'd do two things. They'd clean and repair their nets, which we find referred to in the Gospels. They'd take the fish and clean them, and they'd take them to market, to sell. And then, of course, they'd have to divvy up the profits. And to be able to do that, you needed to know how many fish you were going to sell and how you divided that up. So why 153? Because they would have counted them, like they always did. And the point of 153 is, do you remember that day? Do you remember it? when we caught 153. This is like, this is incredible. Notice the little eyewitness detail again. It was full of large fish. No little tidbits here, no little scraps or sardines. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net wasn't torn. In other words, normally 153 fish would have been enough to start ripping the nets. This was a phenomenal catch, in other words. And this is a fantastic picture. It really happened, but it's a fantastic picture of what happens when Jesus is around. Here they are, out all night, catching nothing. Jesus appears and tells them to cast their net on the other side of the boat. And I don't think that was just because he suddenly thought, oh, there's a shoal of fish there. He's saying, guys, trust me. Trust me, you've caught nothing, but trust me, cast your net on the other side. 153, do you remember it, Peter? Do you remember it, John? We never had a catch like that. That's what happens to life when you invite Jesus in and let him take control. Life is transformed and multiplied. Now, you've mentioned John, and there was clearly a very important conversation between Jesus and John, but this little church is called the Church of St. Peter Primacy. So it's Peter and his story that's also remembered here. Very much, and, and that's the focus of um, this particular church and the focus of the end of John's Gospel. And I find this to be such a powerful story because clearly the background to all of this is that the disciples are disheartened. They've, they've gone back to the only thing they know, fishing. Because, you know, Jesus was risen, as I said, but then he's come and he's gone and he's come and he's gone. What's going on here? 
But there was something far deeper than that for Peter. He's not just got that general disheartenment. What he's still trying to come to terms with is that he denied his master three times, as we've seen in a previous episode. That denial that's remembered at um, the church of St. Peter Gallicantu in Jerusalem. And it's like he can't forgive himself. Do you know, as a pastor, I've come across many people like that in life who've messed up and who just can't forgive themselves for what they got wrong. And Peter can't forgive himself. He can't get out of his mind. It's as if, you know, the tape playing in his head keeps playing. I never knew him. I never knew him. And he just couldn't get rid of that. And so what happens here on this shore is that Jesus cancels out his threefold denial with a threefold affirmation. It's like he's saying, okay, Peter, I'll give you another chance. Do you love me? And he asks him it three times and each time asks. And of course, eventually, you know, Peter gets somewhat disheartened that Jesus asks him a third time. Sometimes people make something of the fact that John uses a different word for love in those verses. That might be the case or it might just be stylistic variation in how John's writing. But the first two times Jesus uses the word agape. Do you have commitment love to me? Do you have commitment love to me? And the last time it comes down to using philia. Are you fond of me? Okay, if you can't reach agape yet, can you at least reach this? Can you at least say you're fond of me if you can't say you've got that covenant commitment love to me because you know of what you've done? I, I love it. It's like Jesus comes with, what little can you still offer me, Peter? I'll take that and build with that. So those three denials now cancelled by three questions and three responses. Lord, you know that I love you. For anybody listening for whom the tape is going round in their head and they can't forgive themselves, in the light of this story with Peter, what would you say? I would say always remember that failure does not disqualify you. Peter felt a terrible failure, felt utterly disqualified, let Jesus down terribly, biggest mess he'd ever made in his life. And yet, this threefold questioning and the recommissioning, because it's not just a, yeah, that's all right then. Each time, Jesus gives him a task. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Come on, get up again. There's still work for you to do. And I would say to anyone for whom the tape's playing, come on, come to Jesus, confess it to him. If necessary, get with a Christian brother or sister who can help you do this and hear you say and proclaim his forgiveness over you not because there's some special priest or pastor, but because Jesus is forgiving you. And Jesus can forgive us. I want to say today to anyone listening to this, no matter what you have been, no matter what you have done, no matter what has been done to you, you do not have to live in that past any more than Peter did. You can be forgiven, you can be set free, you can be cleansed, and here's the best bit, you can be recommissioned as surely as Peter was recommissioned at this place that is recalled here. Yeah, there's a statue just to your left in bronze of Jesus and Peter. And uh, perhaps you could just describe it. 
Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's got Jesus standing there with his right arm stretched out, Peter bowing down before him with his left hand stretched up as almost as if he's imploring. And there's Peter almost sort of begging Jesus for forgiveness. Leaning back, I noticed. And leaning back, yeah, absolutely. It's just almost as if he can't cope with what he's asking. But what's Jesus doing? Reaching out, blessing, releasing. And that's what I think we need to remember. You know, Jesus is not reluctant to forgive. It's us that finds it hard to forgive and to forgive ourselves. And that statue brings home to us that Jesus is always stretching out his hands, not only ready to forgive, because the other important part of this story, ready to say, come on. There's new work for you to do. It's not all over. It's not all finished. There is work for you to do. And for anyone listening today, don't sit there letting that tape play in your head again and again. Right now, Jesus stretches out his hand to you in forgiveness, if you will confess that, and releases you to go out and to make a difference for him. And this conversation is called His Commission, so it's Peter's Commission. And that word commission, I'd love you to explain that, because, you know, what changed for Peter from that day forward? Well, I think the first thing that changed was him. Uh, as he got released from this bondage of the past and from bondage of failure. You know, if we don't bring our failures and our sin to Jesus and get it dealt with, it's just like a chain wrapped round our feet or a chain wrapped round our neck. It's heavy, we're dragging it along always, all the time. So the first thing that happens is in this commission is he gets freed, he gets released from that. But the commission is then about being sent out, being given this task of feeding his lambs, feeding his sheep. Now, Roman Catholics and some church traditions see that as being the commissioning tied up with what happened at Caesarea Philippi, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church as meaning was commissioned to be the foundation of the church. Many other churches don't see it that way. But the key thing about it is he is sent out to have value for Jesus and to have a ministry for Jesus. And that's still true for us. You know, you and I, our listeners today, can be commissioned, can be sent out. Every one of us can have a task for Jesus. And that sense of commission for each of us is vital, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of having something worthwhile to achieve with our lives. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and commissions aren't just for the Peters of this world. They aren't just for the great preachers of this world. Today, Jesus wants to commission just ordinary men and women to go into their workplace and to make a difference. He wants to commission teachers to be Christ in that workplace to the young people that they can influence. He wants factory workers to go in to that factory and make a difference. So the commissioning is not just to religious stuff. It is a commissioning from him for life, for all of us going out and making a difference wherever we might be. Just explain for me, though, that key verse or the one that's so often referenced. On this rock, I will build my church. Yeah, the reference that actually took place not here, but uh, at Caesarea Philippi that we've looked at in a, a previous episode. Now, 
Again, for some church traditions, that was saying, Peter, I'm going to build my whole church on you. You will become the first pope. For others, they interpret that as, yes, I'm going to build my church on you and on all who make the confession like you. Um, do you know what? Jesus can still do that today. Uh, we don't have to become a pope or a priest or a pastor or a preacher for Jesus to be able to build his church through us. This is the exciting thing. These were fishermen that he commissioned and he commissioned them just to go out and make a difference. And I would take from this story that still Jesus is looking to send his people out into the world to make a difference. And know that send them out into the world, not just to meet in holy huddles in a church building on Sunday. That's important. It's where we get taught and refreshed and encouraged. But what Jesus really wants is even Sunday by Sunday for us to meet in order to be commissioned to go out again. Get out there into this world. Here we are, David, sitting on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee and looking out into the world round about. And it's that world that, that Jesus wants to send us out into to commission us for. I'm also aware that this commissioning of Peter didn't happen in some religious ceremony. It happened right here in familiar territory. Yeah, and it happened over a familiar thing, breakfast. And I, I love that thought that you raised there because, you know, very often we can think, oh, I, I need to be in a very special meeting, you know, maybe some great preacher, uh, visiting speaker, speaking to get commissioned. Now, each of us can get commissioned every day of our lives. When we wake up in the morning, you know, I wake up in the morning and I try to make the first thing I say when I wake up, if in my mind at least, if not on my lips, good morning, Jesus. And it's my way of saying, ah, <laughs> I want to bring you into today. I want to be commissioned for whatever you have got for me today. In the ordinary things of life, here we are on a beach where breakfast took place. Yeah, it's in ordinary life that Jesus commissions people. And it's for ordinary life that Jesus commissions people. All his people, not just special people. From this moment on, how did the story unfold for Peter? Well, it's interesting because Jesus gives an indication of it at the end of that speech to him. He says, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said, follow me. So Jesus is giving a hint of it there. What would Peter do? Well, he would end up sharing the good news of Jesus here within the land of Israel. Uh, but eventually church tradition tells us that he would end up in Rome. Now, he didn't found the church in Rome. That church was clearly established before he got there, it would seem to have been established by the people who returned from the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. But he certainly became a key figure there as Paul became a key figure in other parts of the world. But how did he end up? Well, he ended up like his master did and like Jesus prophesied here, being put to death on a cross. Tradition says that he has to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worth the honour of being crucified in the same way as Jesus. You know, you could say that's a bit of a sad ending, isn't it? 
No, it wasn't for Peter, it was a glorious ending. It was, for him, the path that his Lord and Master had marked out for him. And, yeah, on that rock, he would build his church. As he can build his church on anyone who'll follow in his steps and do what he tells them. Pray with us, Mike, if you would, as we reflect on Peter's commission and perhaps our own commission. Lord Jesus, here by the side of this sea, where we remember you commissioned Peter, assured him he was forgiven and you still had a future for him. We pray today for any who feel disqualified by what they've done or what's been done to them in life. And we pray that today they would find freedom as all of us would and that all of us would respond to those last words that Jesus spoke to Peter. Never mind about that man, you follow me. May we each be those who choose to follow you and in so doing, be ready to go out and be commissioned to share your good news with everyone. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. (laughs) 